What should the college career center look like in this moment of seismic shifts in the job market and the economy? And let's face it, growing skepticism of whether going to college pays off. This is one area of higher ed where it seems there's some agreement that things can't just be done the same old way. It feels like there's going to be some change coming. And it turns out there's a lot at stake for colleges in getting this right. After all, if higher ed is this engine of opportunity for the country, it's not enough to just get students to and through college. The bridge to a meaningful career has to be there too. And it has to work for the increasingly diverse student population going to college. So what does that look like? Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and editor here at Ed Surge. This week, we are exploring the future of career services at colleges, which, when you think about it, impacts K-12 too. Because students and their parents at all levels are asking, how will this learning help me get a job someday? And meanwhile, educators are often pushing to make sure that learning works not just for that first job, but also prepares students to be good citizens and set them up for long-term success. So for this week's episode, I talked to two professors working in this area. One is Melanie Buford, a teaching specialist at the University of Minnesota, who helps work with students on experiential learning programs and does some leadership development. Earlier in her career, she worked at a nonprofit that did workforce development, and she's worked in career services at several colleges and universities. Our other guest is Michael Stapleton, who is also at the University of Minnesota, as a professor in the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development. He has long worked in career development issues and in what he describes as a K-20 pipeline of issues preparing students for what comes after school. These two professors just edited a new book called Mapping the Future of Undergraduate Career Education. It's got one of those long subtitles, which is Equitable Career Learning, Development, and Preparation in the New World of Work. The book is unusual for an academic title, in that it includes authors not just at colleges, but some folks at private companies working on career counseling as well. I started by asking Melanie and Michael to walk us through how things are different now at colleges than, say, when I went through school. What are college career services like today compared to how they were, say, 10 years ago? Hopefully different than what we, what we do today, hopefully, in most places. But so, you know, a typical college student might go to school and if they went to more of a traditional college, they might be asked to choose a major right away. And so they would sort of be entered into a particular academic program. And then let's say they were looking to learn more about careers, explore careers. Perhaps they either, you know, they were in more of a vocational major and they liked it or they didn't like it. They might go to a career center and they would sit down with typically what would be a career coach, one of their, you know, coaches or advisors or counselors, <laughs> depending on how they define at that institution. And, um, you know, they would often take a test, take some sort of assessment, the Myers-Briggs, the strong interest inventory, one of those kind of popular assessments. And that assessment would attempt to, you know, gather some information about their personality, maybe their values, uh, perhaps something about uh, their interests and what kind of, you know, what are their hobbies or their interests. And it would often generate a list of <laughs> careers that they made it, might enjoy. And so the student would sit down with the counselor. This is more or less my experience as well. Uh, the student would sit down with the counselor and 
uh, go through this list of careers and the counselor might say, hey, you know, which of these is really interesting to you? The student might say, oh, wow, I've never thought of being a forester, you know, and they would generate some possibilities. And then the, the um, counselor advisor might then send the student off to do some occupational research. There are some, you know, pretty robust da databases online, and they might kind of send them off to, to look up some options and decide from there, you know, what, what might be a best fit. So to dig into what the heck is a forester and then learn about it. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, it's a forester, how many job openings are there, what types of education do they typically, you know, for each different career, um, what might you do then to build toward that path while you're in school, maybe that conversation would happen. And so that was kind of that traditional, what we might call the matching model of, you know, career services. And if you go back far enough <laughs> uh, toward kind of the very early days of career development in colleges, it, would, it may just be kind of the apprenticeship model where students would simply watch their faculty member, <laughs> uh, they, would, they would learn, they would be recipients of that amazing knowledge, and then they might just graduate, and it would be a matter of reaching out to some people who are in their industry by letter, for instance, <laughs> you know, like snail mail, right? And connecting and trying to find someone who would be willing to take them on as an apprentice. So that was like the old days, I would say more recently, we, we've had that kind of matching model. And I'm, I'm, we hope that now many career centers are moving more toward a more sophisticated approach. Awesome. Mike, do you want to add anything to this classic model? I would. I, I would say 10 or more years ago, and I fall under the and more category, um, most students might not even be aware of the career services office. Like it would be a, a room on campus they didn't know where it was. Yeah, exactly. Um, and or maybe the assumption for the student was, well, I that's something that I pursue or seek out when I'm a senior, right? When I'm getting close to graduation and I need help with my uh, resume or cover letter. Those were kind of like the two, two main requests. I remember when I was working as a, a practicum student in a career development office. And so usually it was, you know, the juniors and, and the seniors certainly kind of running up to the third floor to our designated office and saying, hey, I, I hear you do workshops on writing a, a cover letter. And so um, as Melanie alluded to, uh, fortunately that has shifted. And, and really, um, I think the message now to perspective college students and their families is that this is a process and we're going to engage you in a, a career exploration process even before you step foot on campus and we're going to engage you in different ways and work with you um, as you progress towards your degree so i think that's a major shift for the for the better great so that whole a conception of what it is is it a is it a services joint to proofread a, a document for your your resume, or is it this more holistic idea of like what do you you know helping you figure out what it is you want to do? I would add that there are still students who believe that they shouldn't go to career services until they know exactly what they want to do, and that holds a lot of students back. And they you know many of them still have that model of oh it's not for exploration it's for you know preparing once I'm ready to job search today, <laughs> which can be a barrier. Yeah. Okay. So this more sophisticated approach, what are, what have, what has happened in more recent years that, that colleges are doing to move away from that classic model? Yeah, we see a couple different things. One big move over the last few years, and I wouldn't even say a few years, this has been happening since the seventies, possibly even a little bit further back, but has certainly been growing is um, curricular integration. So one big move is for career services departments to work um, 
and to integrate more seamlessly into, into the academic side of the house and offer career-based courses. And so, you know, there's tons of evidence that suggests that those work. Uh, they, many courses have, have off, always been on offer, but I think there's increased attention lately to making them more uh, mandatory for different groups of students. Like what kind of course are we talking about? What's a course title in this, in this genre? So uh, I used to teach a course called Career Decision Making. And it would, it's, you know, kind of a typical course It was for first year students, and it might have different kind of modules as you go throughout the semester, beginning with things like, um, what can we learn about your personality, your values, your interests, maybe taking some assessments, processing those assessment results, um, learning about different types of careers in class, um, and exploring careers in class, doing some of that occupational research we talked about, you know, finding out where are those careers, what does it look like, what do they require, maybe bringing in guest speakers from different professions so students can actually interact with people in a variety of different you know, professions that they may be interested in. And then ultimately, um, typically doing some resume building, some interview preparation, some of those traditional pieces around the job search prep, and maybe even some uh, some networking. So having students reach out to someone in a profession of interest and conduct an informational interview with someone that they want to talk to. And so the idea is by the end of the course, students have kind of got like, you know, they've got everything they need <laughs> to pursue a lifelong, you know, uh, productive career. And they've at least begun those foundational skills, resume and the network piece as well. And they get college credit. So they're going to a class. This is not a side thing they have to do on their own time. One of the big kind of developments, one of them at least, is that they, you know, courses aren't for, for credit in a way that students who may have full schedules or may have, you know, other barriers to extracurriculars can actually access those as part of their, their coursework. I would jump in and just say another uh, shift, even within the last, you know, two and a half to, to five years, has been in the modality of services. So if you look at the, in the past, you know, the traditional student would come in and sit in person, you know, one-to-one -one with a coach and then maybe come back once or twice, kind of go through this, this matching process that Melanie outlined. Um, certainly since the pande pandemic, um, since March of 2020, career service offices have shifted just like many other offices and, and other industries. And so there are a lot more um, online, um, you know, workshops, uh, recorded uh, webinars that students can now access. Um, there's different types of group um, settings where, say, a group of students, maybe in a certain major or discipline, might work together with a coach or counselor. Um, so I think uh, to, to build on what Melanie said, access has become a real issue now in terms of how do, as you know, assume it's a large institution, how do you make your services available to to all students, right? Not just to the students that know. Uh, that the service exists or where the office is located on campus, but what's an equitable way to reach more students and to do it in, a, in an efficient way. So that's been a major shift within the last, obviously the last three years, but probably longer. I would also add that, you know, one, one significant arm of most career services offices is what, what is often called employer relations and partnerships. And so they, there, there is work also being done to bring in outside employers and either hold information sessions on campus and so kind of bring the student and the employer together so that they can connect for possible opportunities. 
and or to generate some internship and experiential learning opportunities within the career center uh, as well. So we, you know, we know that experiential learning is highly correlated with being able to successfully navigate that post-college transition into the workforce. And so, you know, those are, there's a significant emphasis on experiential learning as well and trying to connect employers so that students don't just have to navigate the sea of online applications on their own. Okay, so these are some things that are already taking hold um, and, and then changing as the pandemic comes in. So you, you've, you've got this book of, of articles, Mapping the Future of Undergraduate Career Education. And I was hoping you could highlight some of the, the trends in, in, in this work that you feel are, you know, are, are sort of what might even be um, or what, what is being tried in some places to go even further into to, to, to changing the way career services are developed or, or delivered rather. Yeah. So it's a, it's a complex picture <laughs> because we're trying to, you know, when you think about uh, supporting economic mobility for an entire college going student population, that's a pretty big ask, right? Uh, especially with, you know, we have, we have students from all different kinds of backgrounds and with all kinds of different expectations for work coming in now. And those, de- those demographics have gotten just more and more diverse over the, the, the time period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, both, you know, the, the U.S. population is shifting and changing in terms of demographics. It's getting more diverse in certain ways. And so, yeah, so, are, so are colleges, right, as some of the big access pushes have happened over the last 50 years. And so, yeah, so we, you know, we have a, a number of different chapters covering all kinds of things. But one, um, you know, we have kind of an introductory section. So we talk about Generation Z and what we know so far about their preferences for learning and for career. They are, um, you know, generational research. You always have to take it with a grain of salt, right? <laughs> it's, it's never absolute. Uh, but we do, there, there, we now have a significant amount of data about what Gen Z is kind of wanting, what some of their experiences are entering into the workforce. And so that's one piece. Um, you know, one of the challenges for career services is that even as higher ed has, um, perhaps we might say struggled to keep up with changes to the world, to life, to career, to the workforce, the workforce itself is rapidly still changing, as we know. And, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated many of the things that were already in motion around um, you know, the changing nature of what work even looks like, looking at multiple streams of income, you know, all these different kind of shifts in modality that are happening in the world of work. So in other words, like, does that mean, what does modality mean in that, like remote work versus in person or what is modality? Yes. Yeah. So changes in, in what work feel, looks and feels like. So some people now, right, many of us, and this is always true, but it's becoming arguably more prominent. Folks are working from home. Folks may be entrepreneurial. We've got, We've got an entire profession influencing and content, content creation that is rapidly <laughs> growing. And that may, you know, you, you know, you may be working, working anywhere. You know, we've got digital nomads who are working all over the world and maybe have a base in a certain place or working in different, different you, know, you know, types of lines of work, different jobs. Yeah, you, know, you know, we've got, got folks who are commuting and, you know, commuting some part of the week and staying home other parts of the week. It looks like so many different things now work as, you know, become more flexible in terms of what it looks like. Okay, so that's the struggle is that the environment is changing around, the workforce environment is changing so rapidly. Yeah. And so career services then needs to not only prepare students for the work, you know, the changes to work 
30 years ago, but it also needs to prepare students for work today and ideally for work of the future, right? Because many students are going to have, you know, there's all this evidence to suggest that careers and lives as our life expectancy gets longer, our careers are getting longer. And so we're talking about decades and decades of work. And, you know, if it evolves as it has over the last 30 years, it's, it's likely not going to look like it does today. And so we address things like, what are some global trends in career services? What can we learn from different international contexts? So we have authors from different countries in the book um, beyond just the United States, right? What can we learn about how to work with international students and how to address needs around um, work status and and visa and all of that? That's a huge issue. Many international students are um, struggling to navigate a rapidly changing policy scene, right? Especially in the U.S., and and everywhere to some extent. How can we um, work with students who are from working or or low-income backgrounds, from working-class backgrounds, and who are first-generation into college? That is to say that their um, parents did not complete college. So how do we, you know, how do we address the needs of students who perhaps have not been socialized into that environment and may not have those, you know, have those pieces of awareness? How do we define equity and inclusion? You know, we know that these equity is rapidly evolving (laughs) picture in the U.S. And so how do we make career services not only accessible to all students, but how do we actually think about addressing outcomes, differential outcomes for students of different identities in their career, right? There's a ton of work out there on that. Um, And then we do have, um, as you alluded to, we have what we call paradigm shifts. And so things like um, the role of design thinking. We know that some folks out of Stanford uh, have been pioneering work and career services to engage students in life and life and career design, right? So rather than just matching to a particular occupation, how do we think about other approaches to work, life design being one of them? How do you actually think about bringing together different parts of work and different forms of work into a picture that feels holistic and authentic for you? How do we engage in narrative models of work? And so, you know, Mike can talk more about that. That was his chapter. But, but you know, how do we look at student stories to yeah. be more um, sensitive, culturally competent, and understanding as we advise? You know, not everyone has the same background, and it's it's that's becoming more and more the case here. How do we think about um, multiple forms of work? So there's a term called multipotentiality. Emily Wapnick has done some amazing stuff around that. Um, you know, how do you combine, again, different types of work that may fulfill different skills and interests that you have and kind of create a whole out of that? Multipotentiality, I did, I, that struck me. So d- define define that. So multipotentiality is, it, it's a term that's been around for a little bit, but this is kind of a new take. But it means someone who is really engaged in and wanting to explore and integrate multiple interests uh, and multiple skills into their career. And so, you know, we see this in things like the slash career where someone may be, for instance, a research manager slash violinist, right? And they're actually pursuing careers in both areas at the same time. Sometimes that looks like, you know, simultaneity. You've got people actually doing things at the same time. Sometimes it looks like, you know, I do this for a year and then I do this for two years and I do this for a year, you know, but it's, it's combining these different interests into one career or multiple, depending on how you look at it. Um, we have uh, we have a chapter on infusing career into the curriculum and kind of what we know cognitively about decision-making. That's a growing area of interest for a lot of people. 
Um, and then we, we finally do have this area around um, a, a guy named JP Michelle, who's out of Canada, who talks about uh, what he calls the challenge mindset. And so this is uh, shifting our lens again from thinking about matching a student to a title, a job title. And because we know that careers increasingly, students don't necessarily, aren't going to necessarily have the same job title their entire career, that's becoming more and more rare. And so rather than sort of matching that way, we're actually engaging students and thinking about what kinds of um, causes, social causes, um, do you want to take on? And therefore trying to think through what skills do I want to build rather than, you know, job title organization, what skills do I want to build to be able to contribute to that challenge or kind of solve that problem in the world. And that's responding to what we know in Gen Z research about, you know, Gen Z students being um, arguably, though I think this is always there, but being arguably more interested in social impact and making sure that their work impacts the world as we see more and more, we have more and more exposure to global challenges. So those are some of our paradigm shifts. No, and Mike, do you want to say any more about the narrative one, especially? I'll just make a couple of points because uh, Melanie did such a nice uh, job of, of highlighting the different components of the, the text. I think um, there's another chapter um, that we really wanted to include that looks at mental health um, as a current trend and how mental health integrates with career planning and, and, and work. And I think in the past, we would try and separate the two. It's like, okay, you're, you're, your personal life is here and your work life is separate. And we know that that's not how life works uh, for, for most of us. And so we have an enti entire chapter um, by Mei Tang and, and her colleague about how mental health integrates with, with career and career decision-making. Um, some of my interests um, are around storytelling and, and narrative approaches to career development. And, you know, Melanie alluded to the fact that uh, I think in the past, remember we were talking about you know, the traditional student 10 plus years ago, I think that student saw career and work as being very linear, right? You go to school as an 18 to 22 year old, you get your degree, you get that first job and you you move forward. Um, I compare it to like the light rail, right? That goes through the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. It's like you get on point A and you get off at point B or whatever destination you want and you don't really deviate. And of course we know that work doesn't um, operate that way anymore. In fact, some of the recent statistics seem to suggest that um, recent graduates may have, you know, 25 to 30 different jobs. Um, some of the work out of the Stanford Center on Longevity seems to suggest that we'll be moving in and out of different work opportunities uh, and positions throughout our lives. And so I think one of the, the goals of the entire text is to not just prepare students for that first job after college, but rather for the maybe the 20th and 21st, right? So giving them the skills um, this idea of learning to learn and learning um, how one operates best in new situations, the talents, the skills that they bring to those new work environments. That's really going to be a lifelong skill that we're trying to, to coach our students, but also to coach other educators. Um, and I'll just, I'll just close it. I think in the past, there's been a lot of emphasis on the career development staff. Um, educating students about work and career. And one of the, the central components of our work that we integrate throughout the text is that career is everybody's business. Career education should be the business of, of all educators, including um, different student affairs uh, professionals on campus. And so um, not that that's entirely new, but we really try and make that very explicit as a theme throughout the text. 
one of the things that's that I know from covering higher education for a really long time is that not everybody on campus, professors, other folks that have that have in the in the academy see their job as tied to career development. And, you know, obviously they might think of it more as like teaching their discipline or helping people go to a grad school in their discipline, but that that's not what we're talking about in this conversation. And so I wonder do you feel that um, tension has gone away a little bit between traditional faculty and the career center as feeling different or, or is that still a challenge in your work? Yeah. I wish I had an easy answer, Jeff, but I, but I don't. And I think it's, it, it depends, right. Is the answer. And it, it's a mix. I think there are some colleges and universities that are doing a better job of collaborating with faculty um, than, than others. Um, I know at some of the other um, small schools, and Melanie mentioned some of them, their their student affairs office um, integrates very closely with um, the curriculum and with faculty, and they have faculty ongoing um, development, and faculty are very receptive to, um, to that career message and embedding that message to to their students. So I think it it, it varies for sure. Um, I know through some of my own work in um, the College of Education, Human Development at the University of Minnesota, we've partnered with student affairs to implement some curriculum around strengths and identifying um, different strengths uh, of students. And to be honest, I think we had mixed success. There are some faculty that were, as you said, Jeff, kind of like, hey, this is my content. Um, I'm, I'm teaching physics. I'm just using that as an example. Uh, but this is this is the content that I'm going to deliver. And it's not really my role to to infuse this other curriculum around career education into my my syllabus, for example. Um, I think that's changing. I'd be interested to hear what Melanie says around this, too. But I think that's changing as more faculty are seeing the importance of making the connection between their content and how students might use that content or apply that content after after graduation. And it doesn't need to be to be much. Uh, it doesn't have to be an entire unit in a syllabus on career education. It could be a three to five minute sort of wrap up of this is how you might use this this content or this is how you might use this particular uh, example in future work. And so I think um, I'm cautiously optimistic, I think, but I think there's slowly a trend moving towards more intentional integration into the college classroom around career education. Melanie, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. I, the only thing I would add, one thing that's helped in these conversations to kind of get different folks at universities focused a little bit more on career is all of the media attention to the changing nature of work, right? I think, you know, the great resignation, the impacts of COVID-19, I think people are starting to be more aware of the precarity of work and the precarity of kind of stable long-term work, full-time work perhaps. And so for instance, the UCLA's American Freshman Survey found that like in 1968, right, students' main goal for attending college was to develop a meaningful life. Uh, So in the 60s, whereas, um, you know, nowadays there there is a significant proportion of students that will say, we want to get a good job. And that's, that's our intention with going to yeah. college. And so I think data like that helps to reinforce the message as well as, you know, federal attention to return on investment for, for undergraduate degrees, you know, Biden's long cancellation, all of that. Um, but the only other thing I would say is that I think there's somewhat understandable 
um, reluctance to engage in career development work on the part of faculty and staff. You know, I think a lot of people, and this may be generous, but I think a lot of people know it's important. But I think on the staff side, there may be some concern about job creep and that they're suddenly being asked to do their thing and to kind of become more um, educated on the issues of career, right? Um, some people are very excited about that. Others may be a little bit wary. And then on the faculty side, you know, we the way that colleges are structured, there many faculty are not really incentivized to move outside of their area of expertise and to begin to learn a new discipline. I think there may be some some reasonable hesitation around, okay, this is what I'm good at. I've been paid for this my entire life. This is what I'm recognized on. You know, to suddenly expect me to move in this other d- domain, my my you know tenure incentives may not align. There may be kind of other challenges there. So I think I, I don't know that the model is built built for that in, in you know particularly well structurally. But I do think that that change is happening. As Mike said, you know, we see more and more administrators beginning to think, you know, this is no longer icing on the cake. This is the cake. You know, we got to make sure that students can meet their basic needs when they graduate. It is the probably, you know, you mentioned briefly the debt cancellation, but it is this national narrative has really turned to the high cost of college. And the question that I hear way more than I ever did, even a few years ago of is college worth it is part of this too, right? Of how to, how to make college seem like it is serving what students say they're there to do, to, uh, to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why we see, you know, experiential learning, for example, being one of those nice, tangible pieces that you can say, okay, I've gone to college, I learned a ton, and I have this new network, I have have had these experiences that have really taught me about work, and I can now, you know, have a more solid foundation. I think schools are sort of seeing the value of those pieces and working on integrating them in different ways to, to get that return. Yeah, I think, and I think just to jump in here, Jeff, I think, you know, Melanie mentioned this um, UCLA American um, freshman survey, and one of the most recent results said that 85% of first-year students say, say their main priority now uh, for attending college is to get to get a good job and to have a, a successful career, right, however that's defined. And I would say it's not just the students that are expecting that, but also their families, right? Their, their parents mm-hmm. are showing up at orientations or prospective student days and saying, uh, we'd like to see you know, what, what your students are doing after graduation, uh, what type of starting salaries are they earning if they go into this major or go through this department. So I think um, there's just more of an explicit um, desire. And sometimes they want numbers, right? Some, they, sometimes they call them placement rates. We try and stay away from the word placement in career development and emphasize the development. But they want to know if they're investing literally thousands of dollars into a four-year degree or, or a two-year degree what uh, is going to be the, the return on that investment? And so I think um, not only students, but parents are becoming more emboldened to ask those types of questions early on in the um, college exploration process, even. Very consumer-driven demand for that service to be to be infused in the way y'all are describing, in the way it sounds like you think will work better in, in any case, it sounds like. Yeah, I think. I think the challenge is really to balance, you know, making sure that students are prepared to find work to support themselves, right, as inflation creeps higher and higher. There's sort of an equity imperative to make sure that all students are prepared to be able to live, right, in in what is increasingly a very expensive country, and and possibly one day retire even, we don't know, right? (laughs) But then also to be able to think more, right, I mean, we'd like that. 
And then to think more holistically and creatively about what work really um, feels meaningful for them. I think we still have that piece as well. And we're trying to do work to make sure that, you know, we've seen all kinds of language around it. But for instance, um, UC, University of Cincinnati, played with the term a job worth having for a while. And so the goal is not just to help students get a job, but in fact, a job worth having that, you know, they, people want to find work that involves things like growth to some extent, continuous learning, engagement, you know, respect, right? There, there are these sort of higher Maslow's hierarchy items that, um, you know, students are interested in, people are interested in, we all want that. And so I think there's, there's the reason this is a challenge, right? The reason we wrote this book is that it's, it becomes increasingly difficult to make sure that everyone is supported in having those things in spite of what can often be a challenging system that doesn't always, you know, align with that. One other one other thing I wanted to ask is at EdSurge, we also cover non-traditional kind of upstart models, sometimes from the private sector, um, boot camps in coding, um, a lot of, you know, th- there are some for-profit institutions that have come along that are that are kind of newfangled and and say that they're working more and even for-profit higher ed um, has been really good at, or has been focused a lot of attention rather on, you know, telling students we're going to help you get a job um, more so than some, some non nonprofit colleges. Are you concerned that if colleges don't get this right, that other actors that are not these traditional colleges will end up, gaining ground and 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 kind of taking over the you know in this space more well concerned or not it's happening (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah we so our last chapter of the book is on skill development and neuroscience and um jim steller does actually talk about that a little bit of credentialing programs and how those are evolving yeah, I mean, it's undeniable as, you know, you've got a big social issue that, um, you know, that the gap between what work looks like and student preparation is widening. And we have all of these, all this data to suggest that students want more, employers want more, parents want more. And so it's, not, you know, it's not shocking that um, organizations within and outside of higher ed are trying to address that issue. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing at the moment in the sense that I think there's some good collaboration happening with, in between like ed tech, higher ed, you've got entrepreneurs, um, what we're doing right now, you know, there are many different um, folks who are trying to address this issue and cross pollinate ideas. And I think that that's not bad. We have like several of our contributors in our book are entrepreneurs who are, who are doing this outside of higher education. And that was our purpose was to bring folks from different environments with different possible solutions to this issue. Um, and I would love to see higher ed, uh, in spite of the structural issues that make it hard to be agile, right? I would love to see higher ed um, pivot to do this more seamlessly and, and really for higher administrators to take this seriously and help empower folks in career services to adapt in the way that we know it needs to happen. Uh, I imagine we may all be working in different, in different camps toward this because economic mobility in the U.S. Is a, and equity are huge issues that go way beyond just four-year and even four and two year right institutions. Yeah, some of the recent surveys, Jeff, seem to indicate that, you know, upwards to half or more of Americans when surveyed question of whether a college is worth it, right? You know, I think you raised that question earlier in our discussion. And so um, we've lost almost two million students, higher ed has since the beginning of the pandemic. And so they're they're going to these other opportunities and exploring other modules and other 
avenues to advance their their education and their career. And so as, as a faculty member, I'm very concerned about this. Um, I had a recent conversation with a faculty member at a local community college, and there's some concern as to whether or not that college might persist in the future because enrollment has dipped so uh so low. And so yeah, this is a this is a real concern. I think it'll continue to be an issue um, that those of us in, in higher education will continue to talk about. And those of us in career education, I think, need to come up with more creative and innovative ways to engage students around not not college, not just college, but also how to make sense of career education and how to be more thoughtful and innovative around engaging students. So a timely question. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it does seem like a dynamic that is that puts a lot of pressure on an institution to to pay attention to the, to this career development um, issue. I think I might leave it at that. I really do appreciate you um, both coming in and talking through these issues with us. I just thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we look at how education is changing with interviews and audio stories. If you like the show, please take a minute to give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tell a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast to help spread the word about the show and help us continue to grow. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.